This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Dr. Rabbi wrote the first part of the Tanya, he wrote the second part of the Tanya and initially, the Tanya only consisted of these two parts. Then the Alter Rebbe, later on, a few years later, added the third part of the Tanya, the letter of Teshuvah. Only after he passed away, the year after he passed away, the children, including his son, who became the Rebbe, after him, the Mittler Rebbe, Rebbe, whose day of redemption is today, Yud Kislev, is a day of redemption of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was redeemed this was a year before he passed away. A day before the first anniversary, he passed away. On the 9th of Kislev, he passed away on his birthday. It's very rare that a person passes away on his birthday. Only the greatest Sadiqim, the holiest Jews, like Moshe, passed away on his birthday. He was born on the 7th Adar, and he passed away in the 7th Adar. The second Lubavitcher Rebbe, the son of the author of the Tanya, passed away on his birthday, the 9th of Kislev a day before the first anniversary of his being freed from, 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 uh, from prison. So he became the Rebbe, and he and his brothers included, added to the Tanya from the letters of the Alter Rebbe, the choicest letters. There are many letters of the Alter Rebbe, but they only chose 32 letters. And then they added, at the same time, they added this part, the fifth part of the Tanya. And these are essays. These are notes that Alter Rebbe wrote while he was writing the Tanya. Alter Rebbe made notes for himself. And the first few essays, there are nine essays altogether. There are nine essays from concluding the whole Tanya. And um, the, the first few essays were notes that Alter Rebbe made while he was writing chapter number 40 in the first part of the Tanya. And they decided to include these notes. And they noted that these are the Alter Rebbe addresses contradictions and seemingly inconsistencies that are found in the Kabbalah. And Alter Rebbe reconciles these inconsistencies. While he was writing chapter 40, these inconsistencies and questions came up from the Zohar, the Kabbalah, the Arizal, the Yitzchayim, and Alter Rebbe reconciles in his brilliance and his wisdom, he reconciles these seemingly inconsistencies. And these are the notes that he wrote for himself. So obviously they're written very cryptically. In general, the Tanya was written pretty cryptically. But Alter Rebbe wrote it as an author. Here, these are notes that Alter Rebbe made for himself, questions and comments and answers. So it's very involved. 
it's very Kabbalistic. As Jeff says, tighten your seatbelts. <laughs> um, but there's a reason they included this in the Tanya. So the Tanya is only complete. It's like the fifth book in the Torah, which are the words that Moshe himself spoke. And in a way, even with the Tanya compared to the Code of Jewish Law, there's a saying amongst the rabbis that there is a fifth part of the Code of Jewish Law. It's called the fin of the Shulchan Aruch, reading between the lines, understanding the subtleties. Not everything could be spelled out in the books, not everything could be... You have to figure things out and understand things, and once you're given the information, you could understand. You have to have the wisdom to be able to understand reality and understand what's really going on. And that's something that you have to figure out. So there's, there's something very special about the fifth, the final and concluding book of the Tanya, part of the Tanya. So we begin on page 261. And, he's, they, and it starts out, examine the Kutitoyer chapter 40, Kutit Amorim, which is the first part of the Tanya. He doesn't say read chapter 40. He says examine Read it in depth. Learn it in depth. By the way, it's online. TanyaClass.com And basically, the theme of chapter 40 is he discusses after discussing how the mitzvah, the deed, is what matters most in Judaism, and Jewish law. It's the, it's the action that counts. It's the action that draws down the essence of God into this world. But on the other hand, the intent is also vital. The intent of the mitzvah, how we do the mitzvah, the motivation, what's behind the mitzvah, the energy that's behind the mitzvah, is, just, is also very critical. And depending on the level of energy and the motivation that motivates the mitzvah, it's this energy that elevates the mitzvah. And he compares it to the wings. Jewish law, if a kosher bird is missing its wings, but the bird itself is intact, the bird is kosher. It's not considered a defect. It's not, it's not missing. It's missing wings, but the bird is kosher. The bird is whole. So too, the mitzvah is like the bird. You did the mitzvah, even if it's with clipped wings, it has no wings, you just did the mitzvah. You did the mitzvah. You have the mitzvah. But the bird is not going anywhere. The bird is, can fly. When you add the wings, then the bird can fly. So when you do the mitzvah, but you do it with refinement, you do it with love, you do it with sensitivity, you do it with energy, with egolessness, with refinement, then the mitzvah soars. You're able to elevate the mitzvah. Elevate it to the spiritual realm. And when you elevate the mitzvah to the spiritual realm, you're able to reveal godliness. You're able to reveal the infinite. Because when you just do the mitzvah, this world is the narrowest of all the world. It's the world of action. There's, there's no energy in this world. It's like, it's like a tiny, tiny little, little hole in the cra crack in the wall. There's, there's no energy because this world, in comparison to the upper world, we are like the stone of the world. Just like in this world, you have the inorganic, you have the stone, and then you have organic life, and then you have the life of the animal, animal life. 
Then you have human life. So you can't compare the stone even to the organic. A stone sits still, a stone doesn't move, a stone doesn't budge, there's no sign of life, it's dead. At least in organic life you see a sign of life, it grows, it's growth, it's alive. In the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the animal life, it roams, it, it's alive, it's sentient, it's conscious. And you have the human life with imagination, which is, you know, infinite in a way you can imagine, you can think, you can comprehend. And then you have higher levels of consciousness, so you have different levels of life, but the stone is the lowest. It, it exists. Its life is expressed in the fact that it exists, that's it. There's no sign of life. So from all the worlds, our world is the world of action. We are the world, we're like the stone. The higher realms, the higher worlds are worlds of consciousness. Someone just told me that they just, scientists have just discovered and they, came, they just have just come out that, that the world is conscious. The planets are conscious. That they're conscious beings, which is what Maimonides wrote. Over thou- close to uh, 800, 900 years ago, Maimonides rise that the planets are conscious. They're like souls. We just see the body, but they're like alive. They're not like stone. The planet, the planet's conscious. And I, someone, I didn't read the article, but someone just brought it to my attention this Sunday that a whole article that science has come to the realization and conclusion that they, they're alive. So the higher, the, the conscious beings, so the higher levels of consciousness. But we, in this physical world, we are like a stone. There's no sign of life. So when you just do the mitzvah, there can't be any revelation of godliness. Yes, the mitzvah is divine. And when you do a mitzvah, you're touching the divine. But there's no revelation of godliness. Because it's, it's like a stone. There's no, it's not, there's no energy, there's no life. But when you do the mitzvah with life and energy, then the mitzvah soars, the mitzvah, like the bird, it elevates the bird. The Torah and mitzvah are elevated to the spiritual realm where the infinite light could, is, could be revealed and you can sense the godliness. Because when you do a mitzvah with passion, with feeling, it's a different action. It's like when you speak. Could you compare someone who speaks and he's dull? Or when a person speaks about something that he's excited about? When you go to the hearings in New York City and they want to raise the rent control, the people <laughs> speak about their rents. They're so passionate, so eloquent, they put Churchill to shame. <laughs> when you speak about something you care about, you speak about something that matters to you, the words are just so eloquent and they're... It's different words. There's so much energy. But when a person speaks about something he couldn't care less about, they just drone on and on. And it's just, it's just dead. Words are dead. So when you do an action and there's no love and there's no passion, there's no excitement, it's dead. It's an action, but it's dead. It goes nowhere. It has no energy. It can't, it can't rise. But when you, when you do the mitzvah with love, when you do the mitzvah with concentration, with focus, and you, you inject it with spirituality, then the mitzvah rises. And then there could be a revelation of godliness in this mitzvah. And he explains it depends on the different levels. You have different levels. Chapter 39, because it's different levels 
of where the mitzvah rises depends what you how what level of consciousness you inject in the mitzvah. If you just do it with an instinctive love for Hashem that every Jew is born with innately, inherently, we have an instinctive feeling for godly things. You know, we're Jewish and we know it's godly and it's holy and we do it. And we do it respectfully. So then it's elevated to the world of formation. If we do it with a deep love, a love that's based on the penetrating understanding, comprehension, awareness, and true knowledge, then it's elevated to the world of creation, which is the world of intellect. If it's done with a total sense of egolessness, a sense of total submission egolessness, then it's elevated to the divine world of emanation. It's the level of the tzaddik, who's completely egoless, who's so united and connected with Hashem, that there's no sense of separation, you feel completely one, then the mitzvah is elevated to the world of Hashem. So depending on what level of consciousness you bring to the mitzvah, you bring to the act, that's where the mitzvah is elevated. The mitzvah soars, it's light, and the lighter it is, the more power, the more strength, the higher it goes, it's elevated. Let's just read that little introduction as Jeff starts. On the bottom of page 261, the Alter Rebbe explained. The Alter Rebbe explained in chapter 40 that the love and fear of Hashem are mere wings. The wings enable a bird to fly aloft, they are not its essence. Indeed, even if its wings are removed, a bird is kosher, so long as its head and body are intact. So too, supernal unions, Yehudim, are affected through Torah and mitzvot themselves. Love and awe, which are their wings, merely elevate the Torah and mitzvot to that spiritual level where a particular union is to take place. It is at that level that there is revealed within one's Torah and mitzvot an infinite divine illumination that cannot be revealed in this physical world. Thus, on one hand, we say that love and fear do not bring about a supernal union, for they are mere thought and intent. On the other hand, we also say that it is specifically through one's intent that one's Torah and mitzvot are elevated to a height they could never ascend to unaided. Once there, they bring about a supernal union and its resultant diffusion of divine light. So if one does not do the mitzvah, but he has all the love and intent in the world, what happens? Nothing. Zero. In Judaism, it's the deed that matters. If you sit Passover night and you meditate, and you study the Kabbalah, and you know the meaning of the matzah, and the meaning of the whole seder, and you're dancing with the angels, what do you have? Nothing. What have you accomplished? Nothing. If you eat the matzah, and you do the mitzvah, and you're sitting at the seder, you have the main event. You've boarded the plane. <laughs> you're on the train. You made it. Now, you have a choice. You can sit in fourth class, or be hiding under the bench, or you can go first class. That depends on the intent. If you have the right intent, then the mitzvah soars. It's a, then the mitzvah, the godliness, is able to be revealed in the mitzvah, then the mitzvah is elevated. So intent on its own is nothing. But when you, when you do the mitzvah with the proper intent, the intent has the power to elevate the mitzvah to the highest level. Okay, so that's the background. This is the we learned basically the theme of chapter 40. And these are the notes that the Rebbe wrote to himself while he was writing that chapter. So he starts out with a question. 
He says to understand how a person reading narratives in the Torah becomes connected with Chachmeilah, the supernal wisdom, the divine wisdom. His question is when you study the stories in the Torah, when you read the stories in the Torah, when you read the laws in the Torah, the Allah in the Torah, then it's understood how you're connecting with the divine wisdom. Because when you're studying the laws in the Torah, you're studying God's wisdom, God's will. You study a, a, a law in the Torah. It states, in this, in this case, this is the law. That is God's will. That is God's wisdom. So your mind, you're connecting with the wisdom of Hashem. But the question is, when you're studying a story in the Torah, and you're just reading it, you're reading the story on a very simple level. When you're reading the Torah on a very simple level, how am I connecting with the divine? Yes, it's true, we do believe that everything in the Torah, it's not just a storybook. Torah is not a history book. Because the Torah just chooses one story here, a story there. The Torah is not a storybook. And we believe that, that in these stories are to be found very profound, deep truths, very profound, mystical truths and insights. Of course, the story is literally true. It's, it's, it happens. The Torah is not a, uh, it doesn't speak in allegories. The Torah, whatever the Torah tells us happened, happened. The story of the creation, the story of the Garden of Eden, and the story of the flood. All the stories in the Torah, Torah is first and foremost, it's true. God forbid, it's not <laughs> a book of myths and lies. The Torah is literal and it's real and it happened. That goes without saying. But nevertheless, the Torah is not a storybook. You wouldn't have to wake up every morning, every Saturday morning at an unearthly hour to come hear stories that we've read last year and the year before. How many times could you hear the same story? 3,330 times, over and over and over again. These are not stories. They are profound messages and profound insights and profound divine mystical secrets in every word and letter in the Torah. And in a way, the stories of the Torah are even more profound than the laws in the Torah. There was a great Hasidic master of Yisrael of Ruzhin. So once, two of his Hasidim came and they brought him a book if he wanted his endorsement. If he got an endorsement from the great Rebbe, it would sell a lot better. So, <laughs> one, one of the storybooks, one of the books was a storybook. Stories of the great Hasidic masters, of the miracles and wonders that they performed. And the other one was a very deep, scholarly work, profound scholarly work in depth, understanding the laws of the Torah, the depth of the Talmud. Who did the Rebbe respond to first? First, the Rebbe responded to the storybook. And he talked a great length, the value of telling stories, the stories of the righteous ones. These are like the stories in the Torah. They inspire us and they are, you know, you see God's miracles and wonders and God's engagement in the world. And he wrote, he endorsed that book. And then he turned his attention to the other book, profound scholarly work. 
And he says, you're wondering why did I first endorse the book of stories instead of first endorsing the scholarly work. He says, but I'm emulating the ultimate author, God Almighty himself. How does the Torah start? The first book in the Torah, the book of Genesis, a book of stories. Basically, the book of stories, the whole book of Genesis has three mitzvot in it. The mitzvah to get married and have children, and the mitzvah of the bris, and the mitzvah of the sciatic nerve. In this week's Torah portion, you're not allowed to eat the sciatic nerve because Jacob was kicked by the angel who wrestled with him in the, the, the sciatic nerve. The whole book is a book of stories. And that's where the Torah starts out with. So that means it takes precedence. And then the Torah gets down to the laws. 613 mitzvah. Which begins basically in the book of Exodus. So we see that it's even more important. The stories in the Torah are more important. And give a person a sense of the awe of Hashem. And the sense of reality of Hashem. And the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe once told the teachers of his, um, his only son, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, he had three daughters. And so they hired a teacher to teach them, a private teacher, and he told them, it's important for you to tell them the stories, start with the stories in the Torah, and the stories and the, the wonders, the miracles and wonders, because this is what instills in the children the sense of awe of Hashem, the sense of the reality of Hashem, and the presence of Hashem, more than all the scholarly works. It's like the Zohar says, it's like a garment. Of course, in the garment is enclosed deep, deep mystical insights and secrets and, and profound truths. But it's like a garment. It's like a Russian doll. You know, you, you, you take out one layer of a babushka. One layer, matrushka, matrushka. <laughs> we have the proper <laughs> matrushka. Da. You take, you open that. You take out the outer layer, and then it opens another layer, and it opens another layer, another layer. So the Zohar says the Torah, the stories in the Torah, are like the garments. You know, sometimes someone asks you about a person, and all you can tell them is, I can tell you what clothes they wear, tell you what shoes they wear, what clothes they wear. Can you tell me something about the color of their eyes, the person themselves? I'll tell you the truth, I never paid attention. I don't know. I may see them every day, but I never look at the color of their eyes. But I can tell you how they dress up. Okay? Another person can tell you about the color of their eyes. So that's like the body of the Torah. Those are the rules in the Torah, the halachas of the Torah, the, the, um, what's right and wrong, kosher, not kosher, pure, impure, guilty, not guilty, the laws in the Torah. That's like the body of the Torah. The stories in the Torah are like the garments. And then, of course, you can go deeper. Someone tells you, okay, you can tell me the color of the eye. But tell me a little about the personality and character. The personality. I don't know them. I can just tell you the color of their eye. They don't look deeper. Then you go deeper. Tell me about the personality, what kind of person they are. Then you go a little deeper. You tell me about the character. Then tell, tell, me, tell me how their mind thinks. What makes them tick. What makes them excited? What makes them, oh, that? You have to know a person even deeper. It's not superficial. To really get to know a person and how they think and how they process and what. And then you go even deeper, the subconscious. So you can go layers upon layers upon layers. But even the, the, the garments tells me something about the person. But it's a garment. 
it's external to the person. Yes, it reflects a person, the, the clothes that you wear, that you choose to wear, tell me something about a person. But it, after all, it's just a garment, it's just external. So that's the question that the Rebbe is asking. It's one thing when you study the body of the Torah, the laws of the Torah, you're studying the will of Hashem. This is what Hashem wants. This is what the law states. This is the will of Hashem. So I understand that when I'm studying Torah, I'm connecting with the divine. When a person studies the story, reads the stories of the Torah and understands the deep mystical insights, I can understand how I'm connecting with the divine. But just by reading the story in the Torah on a very superficial level, just a simple story, as it happened, how does that connect me to the divine? It's just a nice story. Yes, it's a garment. Within it is contained tremendous and deep, profound insights. But I'm, I'm just holding on to the garment. I don't know the insights. I'm just reading a nice story. You know, I think it was the second Lubavitcher Rebbe. Today is a holiday of redemption. One t- his father, the Alter Rebbe, used to read, the author of Tanya used to read, uh, used to read the Megillah every Purim. One year he wasn't present, he was traveling. And a chassid read the Megillah. When he finished reading the Megillah, the Bittu Rebbe says, it's a nice story. <laughs> it was the first time. He never heard the story. Because when his father read the Megillah, he didn't hear a story. Every word, every letter, every verse, deep, profound, insight. It was like mind-blowing. Yeah, the chassid was reading it at a simple level. It's a nice, interesting story. It's a nice, beautiful story. What happened at a very simple level. But that's not what's going on here. But if a person is just reading the story and that's all he knows, how does, by reading that story, how do you connect with the divine? That's the question that he's asking. To understand how a person reading narratives in the Torah becomes connected with Ahmad Allah, supernal wisdom. When a Jew studies Torah intellectually, it stands to reason that he is then bound up with supernal wisdom. Spira of Chachmah, the loftiest divine emanation in the world of Atzvah. For Torah law is God's will and wisdom. The rationale underlining a law is God's wisdom, while the ruling itself is God's will. This is explained in chapter 5 of Tanya. It so arose in his will that if, for example, Reuben would claim thus and Shimon thus, such and such should be the verdict between them. Even if this litigation should never come to pass, still it is God's will that in such an instance the verdict should be such and such, in accordance with his will. The very knowledge of the ruling thus makes one aware of God's will. Suppose, however, that instead of studying legal issues, one merely reads the narratives of the Torah. While it is true that these narratives allude to spiritual matters in the higher worlds, yet since he perceives nothing beneath their seemingly simplistic surface, how is he thereby connected to supernal wisdom? When, for example, the Alter Rebbe looked at the verse and Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his eyes and wept, he saw that Jacob, who represents the attribute of mercy of Atzlut, arouses compassion from the supernal source of mercy upon Rachel, who personifies Malchut of Atzlut, the fount of all souls. However, when one is unaware of the inner meaning of this verse and merely follows a simple story, how is he then bound to supernal wisdom? So here he's quoting one example from the Tanya itself. The Alter Rebbe explains in the Tanya, in the first part of the Tanya, chapter 45, he explains the meaning of this verse on a deeper level. Of course, the story happened literally that Jacob saw uh, Rachel and he cried and he kissed her. But 
on a deeper level, what this means is, on an eternal level, on a deeper level, on a mystical level, Yaakov represents compassion and mercy. And he arouses mercy on the soul, who's like a separate entity and is like disconnected from Hashem. By arousing mercy, is able to awaken that divine connection. And so to every story in the Torah, like, like the story, the Torah tells us at great length about the kings, the kings of Edom. And the whole Kabbalah of the Arizal explains that this is talking about the world of chaos and there was a shattering of the vessels and, and this explains every verse and every nuance in that story because otherwise why would the Torah spend time teaching us about the kings, the eight kings of Edom that, ki- that were kings before the Jewish kings, that reigned before the Jewish kings. It's not just a, a historical story, of course, it also means literally. But what the Torah is teaching us very profound insights. Every story in the Torah contains such gems and such profound insights. But when you know that, then you can understand how you're connecting to the divine wisdom. But if you don't know that, you're just reading the story on a literal level, how, just by reading it, how do you connect with the divine wisdom? That's the question that he's asking, he's posing. And the answer is, he's going to answer says the matter, this matter may be understood in light of what is written in the Kavanot, which is the Kabbalah from the Arizal. The Arizal himself, Rabbi Isaac Luria, did not write or, uh, his works. These were written down by his student, Rabbi Chaim Vital. He wrote down his works. So all the teachings of Arizal are actually written by his prized student, Rabbi Chaim of Vital. And so in, in the book of Kavanot, of intentions, he writes there that just as a man is engaged in Torah study below, so too is the likeness of the supernal man engaged in Torah study above. What he writes is that we have the level of the soul it's conscious, it's engaged in our body, enclosed in our body. But that's just a little tiny sliver of our soul. The essence of our soul transcends our human consciousness, remains in heaven. But it's parallel to our conscious self. And whatever we are occupied with, whatever we are engaged with, with our conscious soul, on a parallel level, our soul engages on, on the subconscious level. Our soul in heaven, so to speak, engages in the very same thing. So when we're learning... When we're reading the Torah, on a simple level, our soul, the root and source of our soul, where it's rooted in heaven, is also studying the same Torah. So we are just reading the plain, simple story. But our soul is reading the story properly, is learning and reading the same story properly with all its mystical insights. That's why it says, you know, the, 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 the middle Rebbe, Second Lubavitch Rebbe, his redemption is today, he would never get an aliyah. He would never be called up to the Torah. Except on Simcha's Torah, when all the children are called up. He would be called up with all the children. He says, why? He says, because when a Jew is called up to the Torah, and you're just reading the Torah, you think, you think you're just reading the Torah. Well, at that moment when you're reading the Torah, he says, your nefesh is being elevated. Your nefesh is reading the Torah is being elevated. Your ruach, the soul has five names, five different levels. Your nefesh is being elevated. Your ruach is being elevated. Your neshama is being elevated. Your chaya is being elevated. Your yechid is being elevated. He says, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm, 
all this elevation. He felt it. He was so sensitive. He, was, he, he shied away from being called up to the Torah. But once a year, you have to be called up to the Torah. So he was called up. He was called up for his bar mitzvah. And then he was called up on Simcha's Torah with all the children. Everyone was called up. So he went up with them. So whatever is happening on this conscious human level is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more going on that we can't even fathom that is going on, on a parallel, it's like a parallel universe. Whatever is happening in this world, in this dimension, is just, 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 just a little dot, is, is just indicate, is an indicator of what's really going on, on a deeper level. That our very neshama, the higher level of the neshama, the essence of the neshama, the root and source of the neshama, simultaneously, while we're learning, it's also learning. The only difference is we're in the driver's seat. <laughs> Even though we're the tip of the iceberg, but we are in the engine room. We are in the driver's seat. We can drive whatever. We can make that change. So when we sit down and we read the Torah, and we're called up to the Torah, and we're reading the Torah, even on a very simple level, simultaneously, the higher level of Nisham is also engaging in the Torah, but on its level. So the essence of the Nisham is engaged in the story of the Torah. It's not just hearing a story. It's understanding and learning the mystical part of the story, what's inside the story. And therefore, therefore, it's connected. So when you study Torah, when you're reading the Torah, I'm just reading on a literal level, a simple story. But yet, the essence of my soul is connecting with the divine supernal wisdom as a result of my studying Torah. Isn't there a concern, a negative side to this, that if... Uh because you, you gave a positive example, but if we are engaged in something that is not good, but you know, superficial for us, but the ruach uh, then goes very deep into something very to an abyss or something very, very bad or dark. That's a very good point, and we will get to it later on in the in the essay. That we have the ability to affect negatively. Whatever we do in this world has a tremendous impact on the higher realms. So we do have the ability to make what's called a pagam, livgom. We could create a scar in the higher realms and we create a, a, in the universe. Even though we are so tiny, but we're like the, the edge of the spear. We're like the... Uh, so whatever we do does affect the higher realms on, bo- on both levels, for good and for the opposite. That's why we have tremendous responsibility. Because whatever we do, we are in the engine room, we are in the driver's seat, and whatever we do affects not just us, but affects the angels, the whole universe, and ultimately, even Hashem Himself. Hashem placed His destiny in our hands. What we do affects him. When we don't behave, he is in exile. He goes into exile. He is negatively affected. He's a real gambler. He gambled. He put his destiny in our hands. <laughs> now the returns, you know, it's like, it was like when you're investing in business. You're not playing it safe. You can lose everything. Or you can gain everything. You can become a billionaire or you can go bankrupt. 
So is, is that going back to your point about the purpose and the liberation? That's why I think it's important for us to understand why do we do what we do? If we have that understanding, and maybe just not doing it for the sake of the actions without really purpose and fulfillment and the liberation, it's, it's kind of lacking the spiritual aspect, but once we have that, we also gonna go in the right direction and we probably have gonna have the tendency to do it again and again toward a probably positive purpose. Absolutely. That's why he says that it's vital, it's essential. In the language of the rabbis, if you do a mitzvah without intent, it's like a body without a soul. Think about it. What's a body without a soul? Dead. It's a corpse. It's nothing. So it's not a detail. It's not like icing on the cake. It's nice to have intention. But if not, I have the main event. I did the mitzvah. No, it's not so. Not so. Without intent, you end up with a corpse. You have nothing. Not only because it's not sustainable. If a person, ultimately, you're not going to do what you don't love to do. If you have no love in your heart and you just force yourself to do something, at the end of the day, you're going to find a way to stop doing it. You can't do something that you really have no interest in doing. You can force yourself one day, two days, but ultimately, it's not sustainable. But it's much deeper than that. The rabbis say that a person should learn Torah and do mitzvot even with, for the wrong reason. Even if you, have no, you don't have the proper intent. Why? Because eventually you will come to do it with, without any ulterior motive with the right intent. So think about what are the rabbis telling us? Let us say if theoretically you knew at the outset, at the get-go, that the person will never ever reach that point. You will never reach the point that you will do the mitzvah without any ulterior motive, with the proper intention, then the Torah would tell you, don't do the mitzvah. The only reason the Torah is telling you to do the mitzvah, even if you have an ulterior motive and you're just doing it mechanically and by rote, or even worse, you're doing it for an ulterior motive, is only because the Torah promises and the Torah is certain that eventually you will do it with the right reasons and the right intent. The language in the Chazal and the rabbis is, mitoch shalol l'shma balushma. The words are very precisely chosen. Mitoich means because inside, deep down inside, the Torah recognizes that our neshama, deep down we want to do the right thing. Deep down we have the right motivations. We just get sidetracked and distracted and because of ignorance. But deep down the right intention is there and that's why we're certain that inevitably that inside will emerge and will surface. But let's say if theoretically if that was not the case, if we knew at the get-go that it's not certain that the inside will emerge and surface. Then the Torah will tell you, don't do the mitzvah, because if you don't have the proper intention, you're missing. You have, you have nothing. What do you have? You have a dead corpse. What's a corpse? It's dead. There's nothing. So it's not a detail. You're 100% right. The intent is very essential. That's what Alter Rebbe is trying to disabuse us of the notion to think that the action is what matters most, so therefore who cares about intent, refinement, higher consciousness, awareness, focus, spirituality, sensitivity, egolessness, it doesn't matter. Get the job done and who cares if you're coarse and crass and there's no refinement and there's no passion and there's no love and there's no energy. It doesn't matter. Not so. Absolutely not. It's essential. That's why God didn't just create the world of action. 
Why did God create this whole bureaucracy, this whole universe, this whole hierarchy of levels and dimensions and higher levels of consciousness and angels and worlds? If all that matters is the world of action, God could have cut straight to the chase, just create the world of action. Why bother with all these worlds and angels and higher levels of consciousness if all that matters is the deed? Because no, the, the consciousness is an essential ingredient. You can't have one. It's, it's just as essential as the action. The same God who wanted the action wants us to do it properly. Because it's true. While it's true, when you do the mitzvah, you're bringing God into this world. No question. But the question is, are you bringing God into a dungeon? Into a prison? Or are you bringing him into a palace? God doesn't just want us to do the mitzvah and bring him into this world. God wants a palace. This world should be a garden of Eden, a palace, a place that's beautiful and not only clean and beautiful, elegant and luxurious and beautiful and warm and light and inviting. So how we do the mitzvah is an essential part of doing the mitzvah. You can't just be coarse and crass and egotistical and selfish and self-centered as long as I did the mitzvah. What, what difference does it make? It doesn't matter how I do it and the intent and the concentration and the refinement. And this is an essential part of Hasidus. Yes, the emphasis is on the deed and that's what matters most, but at the same time, the same God wants us to do the mitzvah with the proper intent, with refinement. A little more egoless, a little more refined, a little more able, a little more sensitive, a little more deeper. Awareness, consciousness, genuineness, sincerity, all of these things are essential ingredients. So you're 100% right. This, this is an essential part of the whole. The Alter Rebbe will soon explain this likeness refers to the source of a man's soul, which is rooted in the Sephiroth above. It's known as supernal man. For, for in the Kabbalah, a complete configuration, partsuf, visage, of ten intellective and emotive divine sifrut is referred to as man. When he says man, it says on the chariot. Yeah. On the chariot, in Ezekiel, he had the vision of the chariot, the uh, different animals are the wheels and carrying the chariot. Man is sitting on the chariot. An image of man that refers to the way God emanates from himself, the ten svirot. It's like God's personality, so to speak, in character. Where God emanates from himself in the intellectual, the chabad, and the emotions. So we speak of God's love and God's uh, brilliance and God's wisdom. So this is the way God puts himself like in the image of man in the way that we can relate to God and we can connect with God. So God emanates within himself and concentrated himself within these ten svirot. So that's what we refer to as a man. Supernal man occupies himself in Torah above. At the same time, that mortal man does so below. And what is engaged in Torah? Be it even in the narratives of the Torah, he is thus connected with supernal wisdom. And as much as his likeness above is bound up with supernal wisdom. According to this explanation, however, he is connected with supernal wisdom only by virtue of his connection with his likeness above and not through his actual study. The Elder Rebbe, therefore, now goes to the state that this is only when his, when his study of the written Torah remains in the realm of thought. If, instead, the individual verbalizes the words audibly, the very sound of his voice enables the letters here below to ascend even to the highest levels of the world of God. 
So this whole discussion is when a person reads, silently reads the words of Torah. So when he silently reads the words of Torah, so he, so he distinguishes. If he silently reads the law and he's learning and studying the law, which is God's will and God's wisdom, guilty, not guilty, kosher, not kosher, what is the right, what is the will of God, what is the rule and what is the law, then you could understand that even by silently reading the Torah, the mitzvot, you're connecting with the divine wisdom. You're learning and studying God's will and, and the reason behind it. But the question was, when you're silently reading the words of the, the stories in the Torah, the narratives in the Torah, without knowing the deeper inner mystical insights, it's not the body of the Torah, it's like the garment of the Torah. So how can I connect with the divine wisdom? So he says, you only connect with divine wisdom through your soul, the root and source of your soul. Because when you are studying Torah, the root and soul of your, of your soul is studying Torah at the same time and is engaged with the divine wisdom. But now he's going to say, when a person reads the words of Torah, verbally reads the Torah, you're not just reading silently, you're verbally reading the Torah, that's different. Because words have an energy to them. When you speak, there's a voice, there's a sound, there's a voice. It has a life, it has an energy. And that energy has the ability to elevate the Torah, even if you're just reading a simple story in the Torah, simple narrative. That's the power of words. Words have a force, words have power. And those words elevate the Torah. This Icarus connection applies only when one is speaking about the written letters of the Torah narrative. But as to articulate speech, we may say that it curses and ascends to the actual word of Atzilut. The Alter Rebbe here seeks to distinguish between the actual words of Atzilut and the highest level of the relative Atzilut within each of the lower words, as explained above. The other words of a consummate tzaddik, like the rest of his Torah and mitzvot, are sent to the actual world of Atzilut. So you have basically the four worlds. Atzilut, the world of emanation, which is the divine world. Then you have the world of creation, formation, and action. Within each of these worlds, you also have a subdivision. Each world contains within it the world of Atzilut of that world. So when he says, when you speak words of Torah, it goes to the world of Atzilut, it's not necessarily to the ultimate world of Atzilut, the divine emanation, the highest world. It means within the world that you're at, it goes to the level of Atzilut, which is the, the, the divinity of that world, the divine level of that world. But when a tzaddik, who's completely egoless, who's completely one and united, the veikut, who's connected with Hashem, when he studies Torah, when he reads Torah, his words, because his words have so much energy, have such power, such strength, they're so holy and they're so real, that these words, because they're so egoless, these words elevate the words of, these, of the Torah, the Torah that he's studying and reading, elevates it literally to the world of Atzilut. That's what he adds, Atzilut Mamash, actually the world of Atzilut itself. Not the Atzilut of the world of action or the Atzilut of the world of formation or creation, but to the world of Atzilut of Atzilut. That's when the, that's when the Tzaddik reads it. Alternatively, continue, alternatively, 
Alternatively, the articulated speech of one's Torah study arises, the Bria, the word of comprehension, when impelled by intellectually generated love and fear, love and fear of God that results in comprehending Him. So this is as he discussed in the first part of the Tanya, in chapter 39, that it depends on what level of kavana, what level of intent you inject in the mitzvah. So a Jew who is a mystical Jew, who has reached a level of union with God, with Hashem, his mitzvah goes straight to the world of atzilut, the world of emanation. A Jew who has a profound understanding, a deep awareness, and a, a deep understand, deep insights, not superficial, has a penetrating insight and understands and gets it and grasps it and understands godliness, his mitzvot are elevated to the world of creation, which is the highest world after the world of emanation. Or else, uh, this speech rises to um, Yetzirah, the world of emotions, when motivated by the innate awe and love of Hashem that are the heritage of every Jew. This refers to the level of concealed love, that also includes fear. Every world, you have like a predominant essence of that world. The predominant world of Atzilut is divinity, is divine, unity with God. There's no ego, no separation. Then begins creation. Where does creation begin? Creation begins with ego, including the intellect. Intellect, by definition, means there's a separation. I understand. I'm observing. So there's an I that's, that's uh, sitting back and taking it all in, understanding, and trying to organize it and understand it. So there's already a sense of separation. But of course, my whole understanding is the reality of godliness, the reality of Hashem. So it's not a real separation. It's like a, it's like a fish in water. I'm swallowed up in my source, but still I'm an entity. I'm a, I'm a separate entity. So this is the world of, of creation. Then you have the world of, of formation. The world of formation, Yitzirah, is the world of emotion. A person who has feelings and the feelings for Hashem, a love for Hashem, a, a real palpable sense of awe of Hashem. And so a Jew is motivated by this instinct, innate instinct that we're all born with. We're all born with a love for Hashem. Just by the fact that we're born to a Jewish mother, or we convert halachically, we have a neshama. We have a Jewish soul. That's what makes us Jewish, the Jewish soul, that has this natural, inherent, inborn love for Hashem. By nature, we just love Hashem. We just respond to godly things. We get excited about godly things. A Jew gets excited about godly things. He can't explain it. We just, get, we do, we just do. We get excited. You see a, a, an adult dancing on Simcha's Torah. He's dancing with the Torah. Why are you so, you're so excited? What are you excited about? You're not running to Las Vegas. You're not running to Disney. You're, you're excited. A Jew just gets excited about godly things. It's just so innate, inherent. It's, it's, second, it's our nature. So it's an instinct that we're just born with. You don't have to work on it. It's an inheritance. We inherit it. We just, by nature, have a sense of godliness. We sense godly things and we get excited about godly things. On Yom Kippur, we're moved and the, the, we're sitting at the Seder. We feel inspired. We're receiving the Torah and Shavuot. We, we just respond to these things. It's godly. It's not anything that you can touch or tangible. But it's so real to us. You ask any Jew, how are you doing? Thank God. Hashem is constantly in our lips. It, it's just nature. It's instinctive. So if, if this is what motivates a Jew to do mitzvah. 
doesn't have a penetrating understanding or insight. He's not on the level where he's completely mystical and eagle is. But I'm a Jew and I have an instinctual love and feeling for Hashem. And that's what motivates me to do Jewish, to act like a Jew and speak like a Jew and think like a Jew and do the mitzvot. And so this is, there's an energy here. And this elevates the mitzvah to the world of formation. You just to understand, you, you mentioned that we are kind of like, we touched upon two levels, kind of like the, the level of creation, you said, and the level of formation. Correct. And you separated that. Yes. And try to understand that. So you, you mentioned that the le- level of formation is related to the level of emotion. So is the level of creation, it's some kind of like a spark, it's something that I'm trying to understand right. that. It's kind so, of like so creation is like intellect. Is the intellect? Because sometimes, you know, when, when I wonder how, how passion is, is generated, how, what is the origin of passion? So is the passion is in the realm of emotion or, uh, or the intellect? The passions are the realm of emotions, but you have two different types of emotions. Yes, that's, that's you have an emotion that's, that comes from the intellect. The ultimate emotions are emotion that's based on a deep understanding. These are emotions that last, that have staying power. They're not fly-by-night emotions. When, when you have a penetrating, deep, profound understanding, and that gives birth to the emotion. So, of course, ultimately, it's all emotions. We're talking about you're doing the mitzvah with a love. But the question is, where, what's the source of this love? If it's an emotion that just comes from the heart without any deep understanding, it's, it's just, it's just emotion. It's an impulsive aspect. Exactly, exactly. It's driven by kind of like yeah, yeah. low level of... It's a lower life. level of energy. Now, this impulse is based on something real. It's an instinctual love that we have for godliness, which is real. But it's just instinct, impulse, like you say. Impulse, instinct. So it's a lower level of energy, a lower level of vibration. But a love that's based on a deep understanding that gives birth to a real deep emotion. You know, it's like, a, it's like a real mature adult that has a real mature love based on, 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 on real, it's not just instinct. It's a much deeper energy, much more profound energy. It's not just a, it has a, be- a real basis. It's based on the intellect and awareness and understanding. That's why Chabad, Chabad is called Chabad, Chachma Binadat, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. It's not just intellectual. Of course, it's all the heart, it's all the emotion. Everything ultimately is the emotion, is the passion. Because that's who we are, our character and personality, our hearts, not our minds. You know, you, you, the Nazis were brilliant, but uh, that, that doesn't, that's not what we respect. We respect the personality and the character, but a personality and character that's based, emotions that are based on a real understanding it, it has a different quality to it, a different energy. It's much more powerful. And then you have the ultimate level, the tzaddik, an emotion that's based on this mystical union with God and this egolessness. To get beyond your ego, to become one with Hashem, that's the deepest emotion. That's the emotion that's, that's, that just takes you to the world of Atzilut. Like so you have different levels. You can get off the ground. You can get off the ground a little, the world of formation, then the world of Bria is like a jet, you know, it takes you much higher, and then you have the space rocket that takes you all the way to Atzilut, you know. <laughs> Forget it, you're totally in a different realm. And then you have the lowest level, okay, continue, and through scripture. And through scripture, that is when its words are merely out of an acceptance of Hashem's yoke, without any of the above three levels of motivation. So the lowest level is when a Jew just does it 
out of a sense of discipline. I'm a Jew. I have a responsibility. God expects this of me. And I accept upon myself the yoke of heaven. God's wish is my command. I'm a soldier. I'm loyal. I'm faithful. Whether I'm in the mood or I'm not in the mood, that's by definition, that's what the meaning of a soldier is. A soldier doesn't question and doesn't ask. And no one asks the soldier if you woke up in the right, the right foot or you woke up on your left side. If you're in the mood, you're not in the mood, you just do. You're given an order and you just carry it out. No ifs, maybes, and buts. And, uh, and you just do it and you have a discipline. It's a discipline that you took upon yourself. I'm a soldier and I'm going to follow orders, period. I understand. I don't understand. The understanding will come later. The, the feelings will come later. I'm not, it's not preconditional. My Judaism is not conditional on my understanding and my feeling. It's not new age. To be Jewish means it's a responsibility. And it's like a rock of Gibraltar. It never changes. I'm in the mood. I'm not in the mood. I'm going to do the right thing. It doesn't matter my moods or my understanding. Today I do understand. I don't understand. Tomorrow I'll understand more or less. It doesn't change the facts. The action will get done. So that discipline is a, trem- is a commitment. It's real, but there's nothing behind it. There's no, there's no instinct or feelings or understanding or definitely, surely not deep mystical uh, experiences, not experiential, it's not intellectual, it's not even emotional, it's just a discipline. I'm a soldier, what are my orders? And it gets done, period, no questions asked. So that's also, it's a commitment, it's a connection. But it's, it le- it's the world of action. It leads me to the world of action. It's not, it's not soaring anywhere. It's not, it's not that much energy. It's not going. It remains in the, world of, it's in the world of action. So it's elevated to the world of action, which is also a spiritual world. But, it's, but that's about as far, that's the ceiling. That's about as far as it can, it can rise. The more intense the energy, the more it can rise. It can rise to a higher level, to a deeper dimension, to a higher level. The speech rises from this world to the tenth spirit of the seer, the level that relates to Torah and mitzvot that are performed merely out of acceptance of Hashem's yoke, where it pierces the atmospheres between physical and spiritual seer. So when you speak the words of Torah, words have power. Words have energy. So the words, even though the words, you're speaking the words that are physical, you're physically speaking these words, but there's an energy behind those words. And these words elevate the Torah, it pierces the atmospheres, that separate in the physical and the spiritual world of Asiya, we have a corresponding world. We have the physical world that we're living in, but then it corresponds to the spiritual world of action. So the words, by speaking the words of Torah, speaking the stories of the Torah, the narratives of the Torah, the words elevate it if it's done with at least the minimal uh, sense of uh, accepting the yoke of heaven. You're reading Torah because you're a Jew and you have an obligation to read Torah and to study the Torah and you're reading it with that discipline and with that yoke of heaven. So the words will then pierce through the atmospheres that divide in the physical and spiritual Asiya and elevates it to the spiritual words of Asiya. One's unvoiced thought does not ascend to the higher worlds. It affects only the likeness which is the source of his soul and which at that time is also engaged above in Torah, thereby connecting him with supernal wisdom. The distinction he made was between if you're reading it silently versus if you're you're verbally reading it, if you're reading it orally. When you're um, reading it silently, you're just reading the story in the Torah, then it's your parallel soul, the root and source of your soul is connecting with the divine. 
But here, on a conscious level, you're not real. You're not connecting with the divine. You're just reading the story. It's the garment. Versus when you read silently a halacha, a ruling in the Torah, you're reading and understanding the will of Hashem. So you're connecting with the divine, directly with the divine wisdom. Versus when you're just reading the story, you're not connecting directly with the divine wisdom, indirectly. That parallel, through your reading, your source of your soul, simultaneously connecting with the divine. Versus when you read the words of Torah verbally, then these words elevate the words of the Torah to, they pierce through the, uh, the, uh, the atmosphere and it elevated above, depending on what motivates you and what intent you bring to the, to the fulfillment of the mitzvah of reading the Torah, studying the Torah. Depending on that energy and that level, that's where the Torah will rise to that level. Okay, that's where we're going to stop today. And um, next week he's going to continue. These are the notes that the Rebbe wrote for himself. So we're getting a peek to the Rebbe's, uh, how, he's, how he's working, processing all of these ideas, and how he's coming to all these conclusions by taking the whole Kabbalah, the whole Zohar, and bringing out all the seeming contradictions and inconsistencies and then reconciling it and bringing it all together. Only the Alter Rebbe can, can have the whole Kabbalah in his head and then uh, reconcile all the uh, seemingly contradictions. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.